This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is author, illustrator, and copywriter, Ava Sandor. So back in season five, I've since done away with seasons, by the way, I had Ava Sandor on talking about her new book at the time, Fool's Proof. She's since released two more installments in the series. So we're going to talk about what Ava has been up to. Here is my conversation with Ava Sandor. Ava Sandor, welcome to the Story King podcast for the second time. Hi, John Carlo. Thank you for having me back on. It is always a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, you know, for people who missed our first interview, why don't we just start off? You can give us a brief background about yourself and your work. What is the story of Ava Sandor before we get into the stories you write? Okay. My story is that I have spent most of my life as an illustrator making visual images, but I'm also a, a hugely voracious reader and always have been. And that led me into writing, mostly in the form of uh, writing advertisements. But at some point during the COVID times, I decided I was going to do some indie publishing as well. It seems to be the new trend. So I took the novel that I wrote, Fool's Proof, and I did publish it. I put it out there and taught myself how to use all of these new tools that authors can uh, take advantage of when we bring our work to the public. And since then, I've also written two more books. And that's why I'm here to talk to you today. Awesome. So is it a trilogy or you got more coming? It is going to be a series of four when it's finished. And I do have a reason for that. Since we're going to be talking about series today, I'll go into it a little bit more, but it's like a trilogy plus. Okay, trilogy plus. Yeah, four is a is an odd number to stop at. Just saying. A little bit. Yeah, I know. I have my reasons though, and, and you'll hear what they are. All right, we'll we'll talk about that. Now the series is called The Heart of Stone Adventures. Yes, it is. The Heart of Stone Adventures. And that refers to um, a very specific thing in the books, which is kind of like the literally the engine that drives the whole story. Um, it's about a mildly magical world. I like to use that term mildly magical because it's kind of a low magic world, more of a magical realism thing than an epic okay. fantasy kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but in this mildly magical world, there is a, a formation. It's a natural stone formation which rotates and brings uh, rotational motive power to the country that it's in. And so that makes that country prosperous because its owner understands this. She lets her engineers take advantage of this. And the, the stuff that they create with this uh, brings them prosperity and all kinds of innovation. Hmm. Um, but there's also a downside to it. And uh, especially in the third book, we start seeing that another country has its eye on that heart of stone as well. I see. So I'd like to go through each book. We'll start with the first one, Fool's Proof. I, I know you spoke about it in our first interview, but what is that one in a nutshell about? 
Fool's Proof kicks off the whole story. It is the tale of Malfred Murd, the disgraced, uh, blacklisted, very talented, but somewhat of a jerk ex-royal jester, who he actually has a little bit of a, a different relationship with the king than most jesters do, and readers are going to discover along the way um, the complexities of it, and also the complexities of possibly being in danger of getting your head cut off just because you got mixed up with a nice little old lady who, who is on a desperate rescue mission to save a missing sorcerer. Hmm. That what sounds intense. <laughs> <laughs> it <laughs> is let, kind of intense. <laughs> I got a question for you. Why, why a jester? What made you choose a jester for the protagonist? Um, it was just pure dumb luck, I guess I could say. I was writing some sketches just to amuse myself with, and I wrote one where an itinerant jester was wandering the streets and felt in the need of some money, tried to kind of uh, trick a lady who was riding in a sedan chair into giving him a couple of coins. And instead, the lady turned the tables on him and let her pet cheetah jump out of the sedan chair and attack the jester. I don't know why. I thought that was funny. Yeah. But the character, it was funny, right? And the character stuck in my mind. And um, as he just began to form I thought this this is good. He is a very talented character. He's somebody who's not bad at what he does at all. It, quite the opposite. He's very good at it. And yet he manages somehow because of his personality to find some way to rob everybody the wrong way that he runs into. And I cannot tell a lie. I was kind of inspired by Chicago Bears quarterback Jay Cutler in this because I'm a Chicagoan used to watch the Bears all the time, or at least a lot more than I guess we've probably will going forward. I don't know. The bloom is kind of off the rose because that great cast of weirdos that we used to tune into every Sunday was, um, or every whatever day, that, that great cast of weirdos we used to tune into is not with us anymore. Objectively speaking, you know, Jay Cutler was not bad at what he did, but somehow every single week he managed to just make Chicagoans want to strangle him he's just something about it the way he gave the interviews some thing that he said or did or behaved or there was um even a meme called smoking jay where what you would do is you'd find some picture of him with his with his unhappy face and you would photoshop a cigarette into his hand that was the meme and it was just really funny to me that there could be somebody who was so hugely entertaining in a way that bothered everybody and that was that's malfred murd he is he's um but he's a good guy at heart or becomes one over the course of the books so that's a lot of what happens in a series i think is that the characters change the story takes them to new places and and changes their personality either that or the world changes around them so right yeah well let's talk about the second one the second one is powers play is that right yes powers play so what happens in the next installment Okay, so in the next installment, um, having triumphed and become a bit of a hero, Fred, who is Malfred, that's his, his nickname, Fred, he becomes the esquire of a town. He's rewarded with a town, and he sees some petty crime going on in his town. He finds a clever and creative way to solve it. This makes him feel pretty good, and it leads to a career as an undercover police officer. So that's what the second book is about. It's his adventures in the crime underworld world and how he manages to negotiate that interesting now you, you said it's kind of low fantasy right so it, it sounds very much like the real world 
so to speak. But uh, mm-hmm. like even the fact that a uh, undercover detective, even that sounds like stuff we can relate to. So <laughs> the fantasy components, where would you say, well, there's a sorcerer. There's a, mm-hmm. okay. So, so there are there's elements a- of high fantasy. You just kind of sprinkle it. Is that the deal? Well, yes. I'm not sure that I'm not 100% sure of the definitional difference between high fantasy and low fantasy. I think Mm -hmm. that um, it might have to do. Am I right in thinking it has to do with the amount of magic or is it the intensity of magic in a world? I had a a writer talking about it that he wrote. I think it was high fantasy and I was trying to ask him the same thing and mm-hmm. that's that's how he defined it that it's kind of like any anything else fantasy wise only a lot lot more of it uh-huh, <laughs> you know? so, okay <laughs> so, like almost the whole thing is fantasy and and just all these fantastical elements you know but i'm very well aware of uh, magical realism where you just kind of like mm-hmm. sprinkle it in there and kind of take it for granted rather than make the whole world that so that you're closer to that end of the spectrum then I think so, because from the get-go in the first book, we we hear a character say, magic has been debunked. They're, men of learning now agree there is no such thing, only phenomena yet to be explained. And in my books, magic is basically, um, it's natural phenomena or supernatural possibly phenomena that have not yet been understood. Sort of takes the place of, let's say, um, particle physics in our mm. world. It's something that people are looking to understand. It's something that they've made strides toward understanding. There are technologies that take advantage of it. There are objects that are known to be spellbound in my books, um, which perform magical functions or technological functions. Um, but at the same time, it's something that at bottom, the professors in the universities have not yet figured out. So as the stories. Uh, carry on this magic or this spellbound reality or science or whatever it is that it wants to be called uh, is explored more fully in my books. So you can kind of think of it as a form of of physics or technology. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And the third book is Doomsdays, correct? Doomsdays, yes. And in this one, it gets it goes even further. So Powers Play um, takes Fred through the criminal underworld and through his undercover police situation, and it ends in a, a big twist. And I'm not going to give it away, but the third book sees him off on an international spy mission. And this I took from the great pages of the old wonderful pulps of which the James Bond novels are obviously the most famous. But um, yes, it is a Cold War style thriller, but obviously in a funny way, which was a little bit hard to do. Right. Now, yeah, I remember you you telling me you were in, you like those books too, right? You were telling me in the first interview, there was a particular writer you were talking to me about, I forgot, uh, hmm. oh, more no, of a the serious one. author, right? Yes. The one I was talking to you about was Patrick O'Brien. Patrick O'Brien, right. Patrick O'Brien. And there are elements of espionage in the Patrick O'Brien novels. They're more commonly thought of as high seas um, sailing type novels. It's the Master and Commander books. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones. Yes, yes. And they definitely do include lots of elements of different genres because it's a huge, complete picture of life in that time. Mm. So there's a character who is a, a secret agent. There's a character who is 
I mean, at the same time, he's a doctor. It's the same character. Um, he encounters lots and lots of other secret agents around the world and makes contact with them. So I actually had a book, and it's back here on my table, called Washington's Spies. And it was the story of the secret agents during the Revolutionary War. But actually, there have been secret agents in earlier wars, and, and there have always been spies, obviously. So it's not something that is bound to a certain time in history. You can include this kind of element in any time period. And in my world, it's more of an alternative world. It's like our Earth. It's There are correlates to the places in my book. A sharp reader can probably figure out which parts of the actual world I based my places on. Um, but espionage fits in just about everywhere. Very cool. Now, I saw on your Amazon page, you have what's called a book club companion. Well, what is that? Mm -hmm. The book club companion is something that I made for um, some friends who wanted to start a book club reading my books, but they really were stumped for questions to ask each other. And I, I make a joke about that on my page. I say, you know, especially after the third Sherry LaRosso, which is the drink that Fred likes best. But uh, it's true. Sometimes people need a little bit of a prompt to start discussing a book. And what I did was I came up with a good couple of questions about every individual chapter. So there are a starting point a jumping off place, um, but it's a pretty complete little um, bunch of questions that you can use to prompt any book club that reads fool's proof. Very cool. Well, let's talk about the concept of a series. That's what I wanted to discuss a little bit today. So first off, how do you even stay interested in the same protagonist book after book? I, I'm, I write a lot of short stories and I think partly because I just get bored easy. <laughs> you know, So <laughs> yeah. I like to just move on and move on. So how do you stay interested in the same protagonist? And, and can I assume it is the same protagonist throughout the series? Okay. Yes. Um, you know, it, I never really thought about that. I'm definitely going to stay interested in him because I made him. You know, I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's like saying, how can you keep watching the same TV show, all those series? If it's well-written, then you're going to keep watching it, right? If you're interested mm -hmm. in the characters. And I hope it's well-written. At least it is to my standards. I work on it until it is. Uh, but I know these characters because I, I, I really can't think of any better way of saying it except that I invented them. I know things about them babies, that you don't. Right? Yeah, they're, they're my creations, right? Now, they do say you got to kill your babies, you know, you got to <laughs> kill your darlings. And and what that, that doesn't literally mean you have to kill off your characters. That just means that you should um, be ready to change things, even if they're your favorite. If something isn't working, you should be ready to give it the axe and, and fix it, you know, not get too attached. But I think it, I think it's okay to get attached to a character and want to stick with them and see where they go. I, th I think you you probably should if you've created that character and you are so quickly bored with them. Gosh, I don't know what that would mean for a novelist. You know, it, like you say, it's probably fine for a short story if you only need to be with the character for a short while. Right. Well, that that's why that's why I, I mainly write. I, I do write novellas. That's about as long mm -hmm. as I've gotten. You know, about you know thirty thousand words or so. But as far as like a big 50, that's not big, but <laughs> over 50,000, right. I have yet yet to write. So I, I start getting, I start waning, you know, and I need to move on. But that's just me personally. But you touched upon this a little bit, but every story, you know, has a character arc where the character changes in some way by the end of the book. But there is some kind of macro character arc when you're dealing with a series, right? And I remember mm -hmm. I went to... Uh, this JK Rowling exhibit and 
she had they had this notebook of hers where she basically had the whole book series on a piece of paper that she just kind of all the major events and the changes that happened like she knew what she was going to write before she wrote the book so did you have something similar when you're when you're doing this did you do you kind of know where it's going from the beginning all the way to the end of book four which you haven't released yet Yes and no. The first book, I really wasn't sure that I would continue. When I wrote Fool's Proof, it came to a conclusion that a lot of people found very satisfying. In fact, I had a reviewer say it was a, a twisty, cleverly plotted novel with a gratifying conclusion. And I felt really good about that, that I left it on a good note. But then I thought to myself, well, I really like these characters, back to what you were saying, and people really like series, and I really want to stick with it and see where this would go. So what I started doing then was I started thinking forward, given what I had set up in book one, what's the logical thinking? Where would these threads lead if there is such a thing as the heart of stone? If there is a, a way to get endless free motive power and make your country prosperous from it, what kind of things would happen in a situation like that? What other countries would be interested in it, maybe in a bad way? What kinds of technologies would arise? What would, what would come of it? And so I actually was thinking a lot about this while I ran because um, I used to be a lot more into running than I am now that I've been spending more time writing. But it was a good time to go outside in the fresh air and do a lot of really long thinking. So at that time, I did what you described having seen in the J.K. Rowling exhibit. I thought forward. I'm like in a situation where a country is facing this kind of potential, here are what its enemies might be. Here are some events that might occur. And my husband is super into history. So it was fun. We talked about it. He, um, you know, and I kind of really gave it a good thinking. And that's what led me to book two. In book two, we began to introduce the idea that there is an enemy country out there. And in the book number three, it's much more fully developed and it leads to a place where there's going to have to be a conclusion to the series in book four. Hmm. Let's talk about a couple of things that you mentioned. Um, so I'm interested in hearing more about the heart of stone because you said that's the main thing that kind of grounds grounds it. It's this, it kind of reminds me of the ring in the Lord of the Rings. Like there's, it's this source of power that mm -hmm. kind of everybody wants. Yes, it is, as a matter of fact. And it, it is literally a source of power. It's a source of, of motive power. And there is a ring in the sense that it's in the center of a circle of water. So the heart of stone is actually in the center of a circular river. Somewhere down in the earth underneath it, we imagine that there's a pivot of some kind, although no one really knows. There's no way to get down in there because it's absolutely terrifying and dangerous down in the water, but it rotates very, very slowly. But engineers are able to put rollers on the edges of it and they can take and using gears, make this rotation as fast as they need it to be to run all kinds of mills where they're doing, you know, textile weaving and um, different kinds of centrifuges and different kinds of, of, of uh, mills, hammer mills and all sorts of stuff like that. So they're making different products with it. And yeah, everybody wants it, you know, who wouldn't want it? Right. So it is, but it's, I think an example of it's not really a MacGuffin in the sense that the, the classic MacGuffin has no other purpose except to drive the story. It doesn't even necessarily have to be seen or known. Um, but in this case, it's a MacGuffin that people can see and understand. Awesome. 
Now, you said you had a reason for why there are four installments instead of just a tr trilogy <laughs> or, you know, I, I've seen, uh, I think Percy Jackson has five books, I believe, maybe. Um, so why four? Well, for, like an odd number, like three or five looks really good. I won't deny it. That looks really good when you see them laid out. And who knows, I might end up putting a fifth one in there. <laughs> People love it enough. But the reason that I have four is because I was thinking about the story arc. And there's a wonderful editing method that I absolutely have fallen in love with. It's meant so much to me. It's called the story grid. Hmm. And a lot of people probably have told you, I don't know if anyone else has ever talked to you about the story grid. Just you. I remember you you told me about it before and you sent me some things to look at it. Right. So you, you yeah. go into the story grid. Yeah. Okay. Well, the story grid is really great, but I'm going to have to digress a little bit from it because the four is my own tweak on it. So okay. the story grid has um, some very, very concrete advice given to writers. It is in no way just kind of airy-fairy stuff that, that is meant to be interpreted. It is extremely concrete. And when they say that there are certain uh, points that you need to hit, certain landmarks in a scene, in a book, in a series, um, their numbers come to five because there is, and I'm, I actually made notes here of theirs, what they have are an inciting incident, Mm -hmm. They have progressive complications. There is a crisis in their um, their schema, which is like a question. There is a climax, which is an answer to that question. And then there's a resolution. And what I did instead, in thinking about it for myself, I've condensed it down to four because I feel like you can hit these four things and this makes sense to people. First, you have to have a setup. And the purpose of the setup, in my opinion, is to make people care. Mm -hmm. If you have a setup that's that's correct, you've created something interesting, a situation where people want to see what happens next. So if that's if it's unsuccessful, if your setup does not intrigue people and make them want to see what happens next, then they don't move on to the next step. The next step is complications. And complications, in my scheme are the entertainment value that it brings. So once you're interested, once you're hooked in with the setup, the complications are what your readers really wanted to enjoy and tune in and read and hear and experience. They have to be tailored correctly for your audience. So the kind of people who like complications that are a cozy mystery complications, if you suddenly gave them horror complications, they would put the book down. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's your entertainment value. I think that's your juicy center. And then the third thing that's, for me, this is the climax and the big question are kind of bundled together because the entertainment value and the complications build and build and build toward a moment where the big question is asked. And that big question can be very small, actually. It can be the size of a single scene. The question can be, is that book going to fall off the table or not? But it can also be really big. And that question can be, what's going to happen to this country? So that's the, the fourth part. That's the, the question. And it's also the, the seesaw of the book it can go one way or the other. It's also the climax. Mm. In my opinion, that's the fourth part. 
the fourth part in my scheme and the fifth in the story grid is the resolution. And I like to think of the resolution as not so much being just a kind of an epilogue, like a kind of a nice little denouement, as they sometimes mm -hmm. call it in classes, right? Not so much of that. It's actually the answer to the big question. Those are two parts of the same thing in my book, the immediate answer to the big question that causes the, the plot and the story to be resolved. And then the outgrowth of it is the new situation that the characters find themselves in because of it. And these two have to work together. You can't have the little epilogue be feeling tacked on. I don't think that's satisfying to people when it feels like it's tacked on or 10 years down the line. Here's what it has to make sense. It has to be a logical outgrowth of that big questions answer. So because there's four coming back around slowly to what we were talking about, I've got these four things. Fool's proof is my setup. It introduces us to this world, these people and their situation. Powers play are the complications. This starts getting really uh, complicated because I have a lot of different plots actually going on in Powers Play. Readers don't notice it. They're not bothered by it, but there are four completely different plot threads weaving in and out here, and they develop a world that's in two places. There's an entire ocean empire halfway across the world where a bunch of action is going to take place. There is the countries which form our kingdom, which at this time doesn't even yet have a name, but that's later on revealed as well, and mm -hmm. their interrelations. And then the third book, which I just wrote, this is where the big question comes up. So it's all going to build toward this big question is, what is going to even happen to these countries? There's a moment at the end where you literally hear that question, like, what is going to happen? And then the fourth book is going to be my answer. So that's why I have four. Gotcha. So you you basically break down every story into four parts, and then the series is one long story also in the four parts. Exactly. And I think you can even break down a scene into four parts. You might even be able to go as far as to say you can break up a sentence into four parts. I'm, I'm starting to think that everything that's a proper story has mm -hmm. a setup, a complication, a question, and an answer. You know, it's interesting that you say that because even when I write my novellas, I do it in four acts. So I just break up <laughs> act two into act 2A and 2B. Because and because a lot of people, right, when they talk about you have act one, which and act mm -hmm. three, which are kind of short. And I, I think if you're talking in terms of movie scripts, those are like supposed to be like 30 pages each. And then act two is like 60 pages. But mm -hmm. a lot of people get stuck there because then you have this really long middle and you're like, how do you keep it going? Well, if you just break it up into four equal parts and just each part has its own function, as you say, mm -hmm. it becomes a lot easier for the writer to to tackle that. Yes. So, and actually breaking it into four parts, that is analogous to the story grid, because even though they have five landmarks that you have to hit, one of them is not a part. One of them is a moment and, and it's a question moment. So there's a lot to know about that method. It's wonderful, but I've, I've turned mine into four parts because I feel like that is, that's logical. You're right. That center middle, if nothing changes, then all that middle is, is it's an arbitrary division between the start and the end. There has to be some kind of a mechanism in that center portion mm -hmm. to cause something to happen. Yeah, exactly. Almost like so. another inciting incident almost to just mm -hmm. twist the story in another direction. So I think if writers have that in mind, you have the setup to the inciting incident and then the plot point that involves the character into the story, 
mm-hmm. have another plot point that's significant enough to have them make another decision in the middle, you know, and then just you keep the story going. So, so writers out there, you hear it. Don't be afraid of the large second act. Just, uh, yeah. Think of it, break it down. <laughs> yeah. Make it, make it into smaller amounts. Another wonderful piece of advice from the story grid method, which is truly life changing. I think it's a very, very simple piece of advice. And lots of people do this intuitively. I know I was doing it intuitively, but I didn't really understand how important it is. And that is the turn point. They said, um, that a scene even has a turn point. The whole book has a turn point, but let's mm-hmm. just go back to the turn point of a scene, right? A scene is a unit of story that has a turn point. If you write a piece of something that doesn't have a turn point and it, it's not even a scene. It's probably just what they call shoe leather. Shoe leather is like to say, hey, a character began in location A, did this, walked over to point B, but no turn point. This actually can be cut, this whole entire bit of shoe leather. If there's any information happening to be in it that needs to be imparted to the audience, you can probably safely take it and put it elsewhere in the story. So the shoe leather scene where there isn't a turn point, that's boring because what people are looking for is a change, a moment where it changes. So in this notebook that I have back here on the table, what I've actually done is I take, after I've written a novel, I take every single scene in it and I make a separate page in that notebook and I take note of what happens in this scene and where's the turn point? Where does it all change? It starts out one way, it has to end up another way, and there has to be an identifiable moment when it changes. Now, it doesn't have to be a big change. It can be Mm -hmm. subtle, right? It can be slow. It doesn't have to be sharp and pointy, but it does have to turn. There needs to be a turn point in there. And understanding that makes such a big difference to the pacing of the book. Um, I feel like I've been growing in my skills, and I should hope I have. I really hope that by the third book, I'm, I'm getting better at it than I was at the first one. The first one wasn't bad. It was, it was a nice book, and people really liked it. But the third one, those who have read the beta read of it so far, uniformly, the comment that I get is that the pacing is really good. I got sucked in right away. I couldn't wait to see what happened next. It's because I've engineered these turn points. It keeps on turning. It makes you Mm -hmm. want to turn the page. Yeah. Well, it's like kind of mystery thrillers. I I read uh, Walter Mosley sometimes, and he's so good at the, I think it's called profluence, you know, that forward motion. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's constantly ending with a question and you got to know the answer to it and then he ends it he answers it and then he'll go on and he'll go on or or he'll he won't answer it and you just keep going on but it's always there's always this question it's always and when i read screenwriting books they're always talking about beats you know the beats of a scene turning the beat of a scene like so you're right like the whole story has to move and that has to be broken down into the smaller elements of the scene that have to move and and the individual the the quantum particles of the of the scene you know so interesting yes Yes. and especially for screenwriting because they say that the beat is the actor's unit of of um creativity that's their Mm. moment when and i'm not sure i 100 understand this from an acting standpoint but i think that they say that's the moment when the character makes some sort of a decision when the actor's intention becomes visible I'm not 100% sure, but they say that that's that the beat came from acting and it's their mm-hmm. unit. So I think screenwriting would definitely include that more. I like studying screenwriting books because they're very 
formulaic when it comes to structure where when you're reading you know novelists i feel like tend to not be so when they're talking about writing they tend to not be so structured and i feel like that's not really helpful for a writer trying to figure out how to write a novel that if you're trying to apply the move the elements of writing a movie you mm -hmm. could in fact write a novel because it's a story you know so you just have to break it down you know but yeah. uh you mentioned beta readers so do you have i was going to ask do you have mm -hmm. like a reader before you do your final draft or it sounds like you have a few readers before you do a final draft i do i really i how should i put this i always want to make sure that what i write has grounding in fact in the sense that if someone who is a hobbyist in a certain field that i wrote about read it they wouldn't be embarrassed for me and this comes back to, uh, I'm a horse person, and there's a lot of horses in writing. And I read a scene in a book um, with a certain extremely famous spy with the two zeros in his name that had just such atrociously bad writing about horses. It was, it was just painful. It was just painful. Like the, the gear that the rider used to, to do a certain kind of riding, it was as ridiculous as saying she pulled on her basketball shoes so that she could go for a swim. It made no mm, sense. Wow. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, come on now. Could you not have asked somebody, you know, because, because there's tons of people out there who are always willing to answer any questions and to help out with anything at all. So what I do is whenever I write about something I don't understand myself, I ask someone who's in that field. So for instance, in this third book, I have a character, which is a moth. And I actually got a naturalist who is a moth expert. And I have notes from him right back there. Uh, I sent the sections of the book, which had to do with this character, Twinkle, who is a moth. And I asked, okay, now I know she's a fantasy creature and she's different from our own real life moth. But is this believable? Would someone who's interested in entomology read this with a groan? And he's like, no, this is good. This is that way. I have another gentleman who is a tugboat captain who reads my nautical scenes just to make sure that I don't write anything completely ridiculous there. Um, I joined a group for people who raise and train oxen because I have a character who is an ox driver. It's it's all things like that. And anything that that really would matter to somebody, it matters to me. Right. And, you know, the whole adage, write what you know, mm -hmm. is true, but you got to know a lot if you're going and, and you have to be able to, uh, if what you don't know, you got to research. Exactly. You should start by writing what you know, but then you could expand the boundaries of what you know, and you can ask others to help you know more. Yeah. I mean, I remember I, I wrote, I forgot what the story was about, but it was something, it was a war scene. And it was a short story and the whole thing was about a war scene. And then I got to interview a soldier and an actual, you know, soldier. He did like three tours in the Middle East and this and that. So I was asking him, you know, oh, would this happen? And it, everything he's like, that that would never happen. That would never happen. I, I ended up just scrapping the story because I was like, oh, I don't understand how it works mm -hmm. out there. Totally. <laughs> But he's he's funny because he said he watches movies and he gets angry because he because he says he does that all the time because he's all like that wouldn't happen. They just did that for the movie or whatever. So I didn't want to be guilty of that. So I ended up just scrapping. I didn't scrap the story. I, I turned it into an ancient, more fantasy thing where I, I could play around with it. But as a modern story, I just didn't understand enough to make the story work. I would have had to break a lot of rules of what actually happens in the real world. And I didn't want to do that. 
So right, and aren't you glad that you you scrapped it before you put it out there and made right. everybody angry, right? <laughs> right? Yes. As a matter of fact, it's funny you should say you talked to a soldier because I talked to a spy. Yes, mm. I did. I, I well, had how do you a gentleman. Even find a spy. <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that crazy? Um, because of the Patrick O'Brien uh, fandom, uh, there are a couple of wonderful guys who do a really great podcast called The Lubber's Hole. And they had a guest because one of the characters in those books is a secret agent. They had a guest who was a former CIA operative, and he was kind enough to talk to me about my book and tell me like, okay, so if you're going to have this, you've got to have crazy bureaucracy. You've got to have, um, you know, like he gave me specific feelings and moods that people who are in the intelligence community have in their lives. And it turns out, of course, they actually really do love these spy novels. So that's that's really fun. <laughs> and in universe, yeah, in universe, I have my own series of spy pamphlets that people who can read in my books, not everyone can read, but those who can really, really like the adventures of Operative XQZ. So he's their James Bond character in universe. <laughs> and I, I really, yeah, it was fun to write. And I'm glad that I, I spoke with someone who was involved in that. And, you know, writing these things brings communities together. I've met so many wonderful people because of it. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. And talking mm -hmm. to a real spy and just meeting all yeah. these different people that do stuff. But, and it's also, you know, also for writers out there, that's an interesting thing that you got to be aware of that talk to people, you know, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of writers, they have to do their work in solitude, but you absolutely should be talking to these people of different professions and everything. So you have more to write about, more characters mm -hmm. to play with. Um, I got two last questions. Yes. If a writer wanted to write a series for the first time, mm -hmm. what piece of advice would you give them? Where, where do they begin? What kind of things should they be thinking about as they embark on that journey? Hmm. Let me think about this for a second. If, if I had advice to give myself, I would say, Take some time. Don't just plunge right into the first book, but take some time to zoom out to like the 60,000 foot view and think about the implications of what happens in the first book. Think about what would happen in the future as a logical outgrowth of those events. And also think about what might have brought those events, the first book, into being in the first place. What, what made the situation be the way it is? And where is it going? And in that way, you might open up a lot more um, fertile story ground for your mind to work on. Um, but also at the same time, you'll stop yourself from being trapped into blind alleys, I think, uh, where you'll be like, oh no, I set this up one way, but now I realize it can't be that way. Mm -hmm. It's always, I mean, it's, it's free to plan, isn't it? You know, planning doesn't take anything but a little bit of time and effort. And it's a probably an effort that's well worth making because you're going to be writing these things for years. I mean, you're putting yourself into a, like, yes, you know, I'm going to be with these books for four years. Mm -hmm. You know, I surely hope that, that I had given it a little bit of thought um, before I began as enthusiastic as you can be about, you know, an individual book, you have to have that enthusiasm for this entire, entire arc that you're about to create. Absolutely. It's great advice. The, the next question has nothing to do about <laughs> writing. It's it's more of just a creative question. I might have asked you in this mm -hmm. in the first one, but I'm not sure because I started asking this um, maybe later. I'm not sure. But <laughs> if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? 
Oh my gosh. Wow. That's, and then do people usually just freeze like a deer in the headlights when they hear sometimes, that question? Some, Some sometimes there's a long pause. Some, I'm always shocked when people answer it too quickly. Yeah. It means they've been <laughs> like thinking they, about yeah, it. Yeah. Like they had it right in their heads. I didn't send them the question and they just had it right there. So some people uh, have that. So, oh my God, a superpower. And it has to be, um, can it be something you think of yourself or does it have to be an existing power that is? Oh, no, anything. Has? Anything. Oh my God, that's too much. I don't know. I mean, can you get as crazy? It's like the ability to do overs. I don't know. <laughs> Let me hear that again. What know. is it? <laughs> do overs. <laughs> That's a funny oh, one. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the, the, like, the superpower. <laughs> I do. There is a, a spellbound object in one of my books that lets you see a few seconds of the future, but I don't know what good it does you because it doesn't give you the power to change the future, does it? Um, I'd say maybe. Who was it? Was it Iron Man? Was it Tony Stark who said, my superpower is I'm just really rich? (laughs) (laughs) That would be a nice one to have, wouldn't it? Nice. Power to pick the winning lotto numbers, maybe. I do not know, John Carlo. That is such a big question. If you could do anything in the world, what would it be, right? I threw it. It was a curveball. I didn't, I didn't prepare you for that one. No, I wasn't prepared at all. (laughs) Maybe. I get funny answers, you know, so. Oh, yeah? Yeah, somebody said they want the power to be able to like make stuff just like like and i was like that doesn't sound like a superpower <laughs> you know but like, that's it's a normal like, power <laughs> yeah it's like a normal power but they wanted to be able to like make anything they wanted another person said they wanted a superpower to just like complete things <laughs> that's another that's a normal <laughs> another normal, normal one power. so well but you know what though when you think about it the power to make anything you want maybe that really is a superpower because there are some people out there who swear up and down they're not creative you know and, and to me I'm always surprised to hear somebody say that because how can you not how, you how can you not just ask yourself hey what would happen if and then then let your mind play until it comes up mm-hmm. with but maybe it really is a superpower to be a writer or to be any kind of a creative and to have something in mind and to make it come true and if that's really a superpower then I feel really, really privileged to have it. (laughs) It's it's a really, really great feeling to know that out of nothing, like Frank Zappa said, art is when you make something out of nothing and sell it. And I find it really, really cool that out of nothing whatsoever, I could create a whole world. And that's just something I think we really should be really, really glad we have. Yeah, I I agree. I always say I like writing because it's, it makes me feel limitless. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and if I can imagine it, I can write it, I can create it, you know, and, and it's a, it's a nice exactly. power to have. <laughs> yeah. You don't need any materials. You don't really, you, you, you just sit there and just spin out the ideas. Now it's true. You have to be somewhat good at communicating this stuff to other people or else they'll get the wrong ideas. You know what I mean? They won't, right. they won't pick up <laughs> your world. How good a writer you are, I think is how, how concretely you can bring your vision and mood across to someone else's mind. But the idea that we're doing it at all, that is really very, very cool. And I, yep. I guess we do take it for granted a little bit. We should count ourselves as superheroes. Yeah. <laughs> so Ava, if people wanted to follow you online, if they wanted to purchase your books, where can they go about doing all that? 
Well, the books are available wherever you would find paperbacks and EPUBs. Currently, they're widely distributed. So from time to time, I experiment with Kindle Unlimited, and that requires me to stay in Amazon. But currently, they're available everywhere. So you can go to Barnes & Noble, Kobo. You can look at BookBub. You can find my books just about anywhere. And you can also look at my website, avasandor.com, and that's spelled E-V-A. S-A-N-D-O-R.com. Um, I'm active on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, starting to be a little bit more on TikTok. I still quite haven't quite gotten the hang of that. I still haven't quite gotten the hang of, of that TikTok thing, making little videos. Um, but yes, I am out there on social media and you can buy the books anywhere that books are sold. And I also have Fool's Proof available now in an audio book, which I am the narrator of, and that is available through Audible. Uh, so it's available on Amazon. You can just see it right there with the other formats of Fool's Proof side by side. Or if you do prefer to shop on Audible or Audible UK, they are there as well. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure I have all your links in the show notes. Ava, thank you so much for coming back to the Story King podcast. You are very welcome, Giancarlo. Always glad to be here. And when I do book number four, I hope you'll ask me back again. Absolutely. Look forward to it. So that was my conversation with Ava Sandor. All of her links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to check out storykingbooks.com. Also, you can follow us on Instagram. The username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips, quotes from famous authors. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash storykingpodcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You can choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash the story king. All those links I just mentioned will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media, subscribing to it, and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, a show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. Please join us next time. Until then. <laughs>